it, it was in uh, 1961, there was a seminal book on race relations in the southern United States that was published, and um, it really gave an entirely different perspective on uh, the situation of the black population in the southern United States, uh, particularly. And um, the book was, was called Black Like Me. Uh, it was the journey of a, a white journalist who uh, was a deeply religious man, actually, and uh, his name was John Howard Griffin. And he um, decided to <clears throat> identify with uh, black people by having his skin uh, temporarily uh, darkened and then traveling around the Deep South to see what it was like to live as a black man in the Deep South. And um, <clears throat> the way he put that was that the only way I could see to bridge the gap between us was to become a Negro, to become a black man himself. And so the story is, and the, the book is about his his journey and the encounters he had with, with white folk um, and how he was totally treated differently than uh, as a white man, which he was. I want you to keep that in mind as we consider this next section of Hebrews, Hebrews 2, verses 5 to 18. Because... As we've seen in our study of Hebrews, the author is, is seeking to help the readers understand who Jesus Christ is. Um, and he wants to help them do that by putting him in the, their context in such a way that they could understand. And so he has to and wants to, and of course needs to, talk about why Jesus Christ, why God became a human, why the incarnation, why did Jesus come as a person, why was he fully man as well as fully God. So I'm going to read from uh, Hebrews again, um, chapter 2, verses, uh, start at chapter 5, or verse 5. It's not to angels that he was subject or he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present we do not see everything subject to them, but we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. 
Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly. I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here I am and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest to service to God, in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. That's not an easy passage of Scripture. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, uh, sometimes when you're trying to understand something, it's it's kind of good to sort of just zoom out and kind of get the general themes. Um, it's kind of like a jigsaw puzzle. Like um, if you're looking at one or two pieces of the jigsaw puzzle, the puzzle pieces, like you really, you know, what? What is that, right? I mean, and that's sort of the, the beauty and the frustrating magic of, of puzzles is that you're looking at these little pieces, but you don't have the big context. And, and so sometimes, you know, once it's sort of more together, you start to draw back, and as you put the puzzle together, you get a better idea, and then the little pieces make a lot more sense. Well, this little piece in Hebrews is really hard to look at, and I think you really need to zoom out and, and to try to get a, a, a good sense of what it's about. And so I'm going to um, propose sort of a... Uh, a means of looking at this, this complex passage by sort of um, having us just answer a question. Because as I look at this passage and, and read it over and over and, and try to figure out, you know, what, what is the author trying to say? I think that basically he's trying to answer the question, why did Jesus have to incarnate? Why did God become man? Uh, he writes specifically in verse 17, as we've read, for this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way. So what are the reasons for God incarnating? Well, firstly, in the fall, this past fall here at New Glasgow Christian Church, we took a look at God's plan of redemption over time through taking a look at the covenants. The covenants that God or commitments God made to humanity. And one of those major covenants, the one that we call the Old Covenant, was with Israel. And it was it established a means as part of that covenant for Israel to stay in good relationship with a holy God. And it established, or the law as we call it, established the role of priests and a priesthood who would serve as an advocate between the Israelites and the holy God. And so 
One of the ideas that is presented by the, the author of Hebrews is that Jesus, or God, had to become man so that he actually could take on the role of a priest. He says, Jesus became a man in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. And then he says that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. And, and we've taken a look at the law, and that's what the priests did. They were involved in making atonement through sacrifices that were given on behalf of the people to God, to keep them in a good relationship with God. That's why I think it's really unwise and misleading to try to understand Jesus Christ in isolation, just from a New Testament perspective, because he is part of this great plan of redemption. And the law, the old covenant, and, 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 and the priesthood, and the, 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 the lambs, the, the, the animals that were given as sacrifices, all makes sense in God's ultimate goal of bringing uh, humanity back to him. And so, it's important to understand that Christ became a human so that he could serve as a priest. Now, he wasn't just an ordinary priest, right? We read later in Hebrews, in Hebrews 7, unlike the other high priests, he doesn't need to offer sacrifices day after day. So he didn't come and sort of become a vocational priest, okay? Uh, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priest men in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son, who is has been made perfect forever. And so because Jesus is both man and can serve as the priest, making atonement for us or for people, because of that, but also because he's perfect and he's God, he was able to perform the priestly duty of making things right between God, a holy God, and a sinful man. Um, he was able to do that perfectly. And so he was effective, far more effective than the early priests. And so that's the first reason that I believe... <laughs> God had to become flesh and take on humanity, was that he was to perform the priestly duties um, of like the previous, like the previous priest before, but more in a metaphorical kind of way. The second one is very closely related to that. Not only was he came to serve as a priest, but he also, and you can see how metaphorical this is, he also came to be the perfect sacrifice. So not only did he come to um, advocate for people, he actually came as the sacrifice. Um, so he came to be the only acceptable sacrifice. We read in, in verse 14, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. 
and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. As we've seen in, in our communion this, this morning, um, the blood of, of, of bulls and goats was ineffective in making things right with God. It was only through the perfect sacrifice of a perfect person, a perfect human, um, Jesus Christ, that righteousness could be attained. So that all we have to do is have faith in that. And so um, it's kind of like apples and oranges. <laughs> the, the animals versus Christ, they're both sacrifices, but totally different. There's no reciprocity there. Totally different in their effectiveness. And Jesus Christ came to be that perfect sacrifice. Now, the third reason that I would say from, you know, above looking back at this passage of Scripture, which is so dense and kind of complicated and difficult to understand. The third reason, I think, um, that the author gives for Christ to become fully human was that uh, was was similar to that of, of that John uh, Howard Griffin in his project, which is chronicled in the book Black Like Me. He wanted to identify with us so that we would be encouraged in his identification. He says, the author says, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. So God became man so that he could encounter everything that we encounter, overcome, and thus be an encouragement to us as we deal with temptation and the challenges and hardships of life. He walked in our shoes. He was black like me. Because we have a, a Redeemer who knows exactly what it is to be human, we can take heart and, and learn from his example and seek to overcome temptation. Sometimes we minimize the temptation that Christ experienced, and we sort of say to ourselves, well, he was God, so it doesn't really count. But he was fully human. He was fully tempted. His temptation was no different than the temptation that I experience in my life or that you experience in your life. And yet, he didn't sin. And so, he was able to overcome. And that should come as an encouragement to us that, you know, that, that Christ came to walk in our shoes so that we can know that it is doable, that we can resist, resist temptation, and we don't have to be slaves to sin. That we can be encouraged by his example. Um, Henry Nowen has said, I think famously now, that <coughs> Henry Nowen is a Catholic theologian, um, or was. Um, he suggests that the greatest healers are those who have been wounded themselves. Right? And that makes sense, right? 
um, the most effective caregivers are those who have walked the same path. And, and that's, that's that idea that, you know, that Christ came to live life with all of its challenges, but made it <laughs> perfectly. And we can hold on to that and, and not just sort of hold on to that example. In fact, if you look at it mo more you know, thoroughly, we can hold on to the fact um, and actually appropriate his righteousness, his perfection. We can actually take it for ourselves uh, in how he lived life, but also just to, in the sense of the more practical sense of living it uh, day to day and trying to, to be an overcomer. But he... Uh, Jesus can identify with us as um, someone who's trying to help someone who's hurt um, is best helped by someone who's been hurt himself. See Jesus that way. Uh, fourthly, um, and this is this is a really <laughs> this this is an interesting passage. Um, and I'm just going to read the, the excerpt and then kind of try to explain how I see this as a reason why God became man. Um, we read in verses 8, In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is subject to them. Yet at present, we don't see everything subjected to them. Who's he talking about? Who's the them in this case? Well, I believe that's us. <laughs> You know, when God created man, he subjected the earth to man, right? And yet, since sin, not everything is subjected to us anymore, right? Uh, things are, like, right out of control, and all of the hierarchies are out of whack, and things aren't the way they are, are supposed to be. And I, and I think that we need to, to, to see this as pertaining to us. But then it goes on. But we do see Jesus, who, and I'll paraphrase, like us, was made lower than the angels for a little while. He's now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. So by, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. It's a bit of a puzzle, but what, what we get here is this idea that God became man a little lower than the angels, right? As we are a little lower than the angels. And as man, he lived his life and did the amazing thing on the cross for us and rising again. And now he's in glory and he's glorified. The picture of humanity now is very different than the picture of humanity for eternity. The picture of us presently is very different from the picture of the redeemed for eternity. Like right now, right, at the present, we don't see everything subject to us. <laughs> right? Uh, everything's upside down. Everything's turned around. <clears throat> but there will be a day when we will reign with Christ. 
We will be glorified as well. We will have glorified bodies. And you know, I believe that this hierarchy, this idea of little lower than the angels will be turned upside down. And I think that no longer will we be a little lower than the angels. It's actually, we will reign with Christ, right? And, and the angels, whether they'll be subject to us or not, is not important, but it's a, the picture of humanity or the redeemed in heaven is of a glorified people who reign with Christ. Obviously, Christ is still God, but we are involved in administration, we are rulers in heaven. And so this is what he's saying in this party. He's saying, okay, well, Jesus came. He became like us. But one of the reasons he became like us is that he is now in heaven realizing what someday we will realize. And that should be an encouragement to us as we live this life. That there will come a day when um, everything will be under, or how does he, everything will be subject again. And we'll have, um, we will reign with Christ in heaven. And I think that that is something that is something to look forward to. I don't know about you, but I feel like the dog that's getting whipped by the tail in my life, Right? I mean, I don't, I don't feel like I'm in control at all. I just feel like the world is just like, <laughs> go for a spin, buddy. I'm going to turn your world upside down. You know? And it, and it just feels like that. But there will come a day when order will be resumed. And we will be put into that place where we will serve with Christ in a new heaven and a new earth. And so that's a fourth reason. And the fourth, the fifth reason that I want to give for why, or what this passage tells me about why Christ became uh, a human, is that he, he wanted to express his great love for us. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are being made holy are the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Do you understand how radical that thought is? A holy God who lived a perfect, sinless life is not ashamed to call you a brother or a sister. <laughs> That's an amazing thing. That speaks to me of his great love for us. That he loves us. I know that I am nowhere near, <laughs> nowhere near worthy of that, that idea. I'm not worthy that he would not be ashamed. <laughs> he should be ashamed, <laughs> you know. But it's because of, of what he has done. And so he came to be a fellow journeyman, and he's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. I think of that story. One of, the, one of my favorite stories in the Bible is about Mephibosheth. 
I love that word. <laughs> that was the dude's name. Anyways, it was Jonathan's son. Jonathan was a good buddy of David, but you know David got on the, on the wrong side of, not by his own doing, but Saul took a disliking to David, even though David's buddy was Jonathan, who was Saul's son. So Saul's son is a good friend of Saul's enemy. Jonathan had a kid called Mephibosheth, and in the ensuing kind of chaos that broke out, Mephibosheth as a child was lamed, or was uh, fell and, and was not able to walk anymore. So he became a really dependent person, particularly in that age, day and age. He would be totally dependent on the grace of others. And I love the story that um, when David finally overcomes Saul, um, Jonathan is dead. David goes out of his way to find Mephibosheth, Saul, his enemy's grandson. And he brings him into his family. And he treats him as a son. He sits him at his table. He says, I got your back. I'm, you're mine now. And that's the idea of, of this idea that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Like, we are, uh, by virtue of our sinfulness, outcasts. <laughs> but Christ brings us in and says that you are a brother. You are a sister to me. And so that's an incredible and wonderful thought. So those are the five reasons that I think that just this passage talks about um, why um, God had to come in the flesh that the author wants us to know about. He was to execute the, pre the priestly role perfectly. He was to serve as the only acceptable sacrifice. He wanted to encourage us in our pilgrimage. He wanted to give us a future to look forward to. And he wanted to express his great love. And so the title of this sermon is He Became Like Us So That We Could Become Like Him. And I've really emphasized He Became Like Us. But I want us to just, in closing, think about this idea of we can become like him. We read in Romans 8, the purpose for Jesus coming to earth in the flesh was this. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That he would be the firstborn, so identifies with us as a human, he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. You see, he became like us so that we could become like him, ultimately. That's the end game, is that we become like Him. God's means of making us holy and acceptable to, uh, acceptable to God, to be what He envisioned for us from the beginning of time, um, was that He would become man in the flesh. This is what Aristotle says. Men create gods after their own image, not only with regard 
to their form, but with regard to their mode of life. In other words, Aristotle is saying, we create God in our own image. So we have God becoming black like me. <laughs> but the purpose of that was that we would become like God. But we're not good at that. <laughs> we like to create God in our own image instead. Um, here's an example of how we make God in our own image. You can safely assume that you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. Isn't that true? Don't we see that in the world today? My God hates... Right? Well, you're right. My God is the God that you created in your own image. And so we have to look at this and we have to be willing to accept who God is and be willing to be transformed into his image, not into the image that we want him to be. Here's an example. Do we accept that he is holy? And therefore, are we willing to become like him, to be transformed into his image? Or do we want to emphasize his grace? We know that God is holy, but do we want to sort of de-emphasize his holiness so that we can kind of magnify his grace? In other words... That sin doesn't really matter to God because he's gracious. The fact of the matter is that that sin does matter to God because he's holy. Right? And yes, he is gracious. But if we make our God more one thing than the other, if our view of him is lopsided, not because what scripture tells us, but because of what we want that will make God in our image and make God more acceptable to us, in other words, make our lives easier, then we're going down the wrong path. Here's another one. This is the opposite. Do we accept that God is gracious? Are we willing to become like Him, to become gracious? Or... Do we expect him to become intolerant to those who we're intolerant to? So the opposite of the first example. Do we have intolerances and therefore we want to make our God a God who hates the people that we hate? You see... We aren't to make God in our own image. We were made in his image. And we are to be transformed 
daily into His image. But we have to be willing to be changed and not just become the people we want to be, but become the people He wants us to be. God became man in the flesh. He had His reasons for doing that. We've looked at some today. And he did it primarily so that we ultimately would become like him, would be transformed or conformed to his image. We need to ask ourselves, are we willing to be transformed? Think about it. He did all of that. He left his home in glory. He took on flesh. He lived in a he lived in poverty. He lived a controversial and difficult life, a transient life, with a lot of enemies, a lot of high-powered enemies. He suffered an awesome death. He did all of that, yet we are not that willing to be transformed or conformed to His image. This is a challenge for us. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You for Your Word. Thank You for this passage in Hebrews. I thank You primarily because you were willing to come and live amongst us to be that priest to be that sacrifice to to encourage us to give us hope for the future to show your love to us lord we thank you that you were willing to do that but help us lord to be willing to do our part of the equation and to become like you (coughs) to be transformed and conformed And help us to resist the temptation to change you into the person we want you to be, not who, in fact, you truly are. We pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Amen.